Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network. We dig plants. I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And today marks the end of our 2016 season. And we're ending with a whopper of a topic the garden at the High Line. Now, this is like the creme de la creme project in New York City. Yes. Um, this is the newest public park. And we have with us today our old friend John Gunderson, senior gardener, to discuss some of his favorite plants. And the larger idea of transformation in the landscape, both designed and wild. So for our listeners that have not yet seen or have experience with the High Line, let's describe what this magnificent garden project is and give some New York history to illustrate its importance. The High Line is an elevated industrial railway that is now converted to a walking promenade. It was originally constructed in the 1930s to move freight in the industrial west side downtown and to eliminate railroad tracks on the streets, which were incredibly dangerous to New Yorkers. So the tracks were elevated some 30 feet off the ground from street level, and it was designed to travel through the industrial buildings and to offload wares and raw materials via two side-by-side locomotives. So this is a heavily trafficked rail line. Um, Originally. used to be at street level pedestrian, so they elevated this train, and now there's this amazing park on it. (laughs) Thank you for that sound effects. (laughs) Um, So the train stopped running in in 1980, and basically the elevated sat dormant, and it was in litigation for many, many years as to what to do with this, which is a typical New York City story with regard to property. (laughs) Um, And so there's this crumbling infrastructure, right? So then 1993, in France, the Promenade Planté was opened, and the idea of a public garden that floated above the city and offered peace and solitude was adopted here in New York City via Friends of the High Line Advocacy Group. Carmen, do you want to read what uh, author Philip Lopate writes? Sure. The fact that this new amenity sprang from older industrial infrastructure says a lot about the current moment in New York's evolution. A city that had once pioneered so many technological and urban planning solutions that had dazzled the world with its public works, its skyscrapers, bridges, subways, water delivery system, its Central Park, palatial train stations, libraries, and museums, 
appears unable to undertake any innovative construction on a grand scale and is now consigned to cannibalizing its past and retrofitting it to function as an image, a consumable spectacle. Productivity has given way to narcissism, or to put it more charitably, work has yielded to leisure. So leisure in New York City, right? Yeah. It's no longer in, no longer is Central Park enough, right? No. We have a huge population growth, um, and we're demanding more open space. So a transformation from work and industry to leisure. And we are we, we don't have more space. We, we don't we can't fill. We in. are limited. Correct. Yeah, we're I, we're an island. We're we, islands, yeah. you know. So yeah, the East River and the Hudson. Impinge upon yeah. it. <laughs> and what's interesting about New York is we never saw the waterway as a place of leisure. It was always industry. It was always warehouse. And Correct. Freight. We always turned our backs on the waterfront. Exactly. Recently, we're starting yes. to actually look at that resource. Exactly. So here's a transformation of crumbling infrastructure into new public pedestrian parkland. And what's super interesting is the flora and fauna that overtook these tracks in this dormant period um, was a veritable wildflower garden and a pseudo-forest that existed on and among these tracks. So again, it's a transformation of nature from Henry Hudson's forests to industrial-era coal-burning sweatshop livelihood Back to wild natives growing in these dormant tracks, and now this cultivated, very cultivated planting plan where prairie-style maintenance methods are celebrated, worshipped, and cultivated. Yeah, and for those who don't know New York, it's in the Chelsea neighborhood, right. pretty much. The park, yeah, the park runs from Gansevoort. At the, the where the Whitney Museum is now, all right. the way to 34th Street, and that's the only part of the uh, abandoned rail line that was was salvaged from demolition. Right. Yeah. So. And Chelsea was a rough neighborhood, and the meatpacking district, and the meatpacking right. district. It was used to be filled with prostitutes. You know, just working people. Yep. There was yeah. no. It was not. And now, when you go, it's a completely different. It's food. very different, and we've I think lost a lot of the history of that area in terms of the restaurants that were there. When I grew up, I used to live on 11th Street when I was in college. Uh-huh. Um, so I knew the area, but oh, we've lost a lot of the history, but um, there's yeah. a new history being done. So. It is a new history, right. So what I also find really interesting about this is that New York City is home, right, to one of to these large-scale projects. And, and we went back to our roots, so to speak, yes. to our Dutch ancestry, and we hired Pete Odoff, the quintessential plantsman from Dutch, the Netherlands. And Dutchman, yeah. <laughs> right. And the Dutch are always transforming our landscape, right? They, they have such profound impact on us. And they also really understand how to work around water limitations. I mean, their entire mm. country is exactly. basically built, is man-made. Right. Right? I mean, it's just basically, so they know how to make use of minimal resources in space. Absolutely. Which is great, you know? (laughs) So a few years back, Carmen and I had a garden shop in the neighborhood of um, Williamsburg, which, what, how how many years ago was that? 2006 and 2007. Yeah, so eight Um, years ago. The neighborhood had just been recently rezoned, right, from industrial, commercial, to high-end condo land, which is what it is now. (laughs) Right. At the time, it was very similar to the meatpacking district. Exactly. And Chelsea was actually not the the safest area. I I was living out there since 80... Actually, I think 91. Yeah, so John was living in... 
Greenpoint, which is the neighborhood just to the north of Williamsburg, Carmen and I thought like, hey, garden center, like there's going to be all these new condos. People need plants. Let's open a garden center. So we opened the shop and we met John because he was working in a design architecture firm above our shop. And John would spend a lot of time hanging out yes. with us. <laughs> he would visit us like daily. A like lot. daily. I, yes, I was poking around. Yeah. And obviously and thinking about something. So. Thinking yeah. about something. Transformation, right? Right, right, right. So finally one day he said to us while sitting around, I think we were having coffee, sitting on the like lounge chairs <laughs> in our garden shop. And he said, how do I become a gardener? And Carmen and I said, oh, my God. Oh my God! He wants to become a gardener. So yeah, I had gardened most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was more about realizing that I was not following what I truly wanted to do. Because mm-hmm. as a gardener, I pretty much was satisfied in, in many different ways, in ways that I did wasn't satisfied as a as a designer. Although that was a satisfying career. Um, so the question was, how do I actually make that step in a in a, in a I guess in the best way possible for it to actually work out for me. I was not that young. I'm not that young now. Um, right. Right. Um, so it was more about that. Asked, uh, talked to a few people, some landscape architects and stuff, in terms uh-huh. of how to actually formalize this. Uh huh. Um, and I did, after speaking to some good friends who convinced me to sort of take the leap, um, went to school at the New York Botanical Garden School mm-hmm. of Professional Horticulture, and sort of took it full on. Uh huh. Um, even if it was just to prove that it was not the right decision, but it turned out to be the right decision. Uh-huh. Um, and I was lucky enough to uh, be hired at the Highline after my graduation from that two-year program. And uh-huh. it's been fantastic. So I have no regrets. I went, wish I had done it earlier. I'd been thinking about it for years. Right. Um, so it's never too late. See, transformation. I'm so glad you said that, John, because one of the things that Alice and I like to talk about on the show, too, is um, well, we want to encourage people to get into the profession. Mm -hmm. And lots of people come at it from different angles and at different points in their lives. Some Mm -hmm. people, like Kelly Norris, at 14, bought an iris farm. Do you know what I mean? Like, And other people start in their 50s and decide that they want to do it in some capacity. So it's just great to hear these stories and know that it's possible. Right. That, you the, know? the staff that we have, the gardening staff, is, is largely like second career people, which is interesting. And, uh-huh. I, and a lot of them are, uh, have an art background uh-huh. of some sort, whether it's <laughs> the ubiquitous art background. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that all, all these people went through a similar journey uh-huh. I think, in terms of um, getting to a point where they knew that this is what would satisfy them, mm-hmm. where other things weren't. And a lot of people left, I think, high, much higher paying jobs to do something that really made them happy. Mm-hmm. Well, and also I think hiring Pete Odoff, right, for the plants, um, he's the master of seeing beauty in everything. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't have to be this planned uh, British sort of design aspect. You know, he sees beauty in seed heads. Right. He sees beauty in the death of a garden, um, which is what I really love is that you can look at a garden at any point and see something relevant and beautiful and beautiful. And I, that's how we should live our lives. I don't, you know, we're so, we're so caught up in like the end point, right? It needs to be like this. Things need to work out this way, but there's a beauty in the process that gets lost. No, correct. I think that Pete had a a, a profound understanding of subtleties. Mm -hmm. I think (laughs) the garden itself, it, it, you're saying transformation, maybe for me, it's evolution um, through the seasons, mm-hmm. where at any given moment, there's always something happening 
you know, 20 or 30 spots along the line or more. And it's this thing that unfolds slowly and it's quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, I think this is my opinion, um, but he was never about this big wow pop thing. It was always about something just slowly unfolding, you know, intertwining, turning. Um, and you walk through that line at you know any given week, and you have a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look carefully, it's it's amazing the subtlety of color changes. You know, especially as we go into fall and you start seeing. Oh, it's the best time. Yes. I think. I think yeah. the late summer into right. fall is my personal favorite time. Right. Up Pete, there. My favorite qu- quote of his is, "Brown is also a color." Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And if you go yeah. out there and you have an open mind, most plants people go out there and they are really into it and they love it. Um, some people don't understand it, but if you go out there and really, really look, you'll see so many incredible shades of color. They're, they're just right. amazing. And right. then you've got pops of, you know, not browns or beiges, but, you know, reds or berries or blacks that come in. Purples, right. Purples, and it's, it, it's really, it, it is, it's still beautiful and worth celebrating. You know, it, it, there's never a time that I would tell anybody is a better time to go there. Mm-mm. Each time is different. I just mm-hmm. think it's, you just need to take some time Slow stroll and, and look around, and you'll discover a lot of stuff that's happening. Well, two quotes from Pete. Um, Pete says, I think it would be wrong if everything was in flower. We expect it to die down and lose its leaves, and we appreciate decay more than most other gardeners. We try to make gardens where you don't have to really change your plants during the season. We appreciate plants that die down for the winter. We leave things on the plant instead of deadheading. After all, a seed pod can be just as pretty as a flower. There's beauty in everything, even in plants that die, as we approach the winter solstice. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And you know what's interesting that we're talking about this? Yesterday I went into the garden, and we had just had two days of really cold weather. Mm -hmm. And I had a tropical plant in the garden called Brillantia. And it had very small purple flowers. It turned completely black. Mm -hmm. I just forgot to take it out. And it was so beautiful in its death uh-huh. that I cut it and used it in an arrangement. Mm-hmm. It was like I totally get that. Yeah, you know, it was it was more beautiful dead than it alive. Was alive. So strange. Yeah, you know. Well, Pete actually chose a lot of his plants as much for structure, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is right. interesting because he wanted he, he it really celebrated the the structure of skeletal form of something after it went dormant as. You know, equally as to what it right. would look like in flower. Right. Well, the grasslands and the prairie are really a big theme on, and, and natives are really a big theme we have, in the design schematic. It is. Um, it's interesting in that we have around 600 plus species of plants on the line, mm. of which only about half are true natives. Uh, so a okay. lot of people have that misconception. Uh-huh. Um, the rest are either uh, non-natives or cultivars of natives. So it's a combination. Pete w- was not so obsessed with making everything native. He was more, uh, I think, trying to get a palette and a sequence, a blooming sequence that would work, mm-hmm. structure that was going to work. So there, there was never a time in the season that it actually looked mm-hmm. not, I think, right or not having a really great moment. Right. So, in prepping for today's um, interview, um, John, you sent some photos around of some of you know your favorite plants. And granted, you sent them to me on the thirtieth of November. Correct. I looked it up, <laughs> and you sent this amazing picture of Catinus grace. Is the variety of the Catinus grace correct? And 
And I thought it's so fitting that grace and transformation, you know, go together. Like here we are approaching the solstice, talking about winter. We're talking about life change and how to become a gardener and when does gardening begin in people's lives and, you know, and, and this elevated crumbling infrastructure that is now this like gorgeous park. So talk a little bit about the Catinus Grace. Catinus Grace is actually a, a good example of another non-native that Pete mm-hmm. chose. Um, it's a cross between the European smokebush, European Asian smokebush, and the American smokebush. And it was chosen by him for its incredible and brilliant early spring color, mm-hmm. which then is followed by this amazing, amazing flower, which we obviously can't see the photograph, but you look You can at the see this on, on social media. I okay. posted it on yeah. Instagram. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and then in fall, uh, probably one of those brilliant orange, red, fiery color um, that you can really appreciate early morning light when the sun is coming through it. It's just something you can't really describe. It's, it's that beautiful. It has a very interesting and kind of odd form. A lot of visitors uh, refer to it as a Dr. Seuss uh-huh. tree. Or, yeah. Um, because it's got these sort of weird tufts, balls. Uh-huh. We have a management program where every two years we actually cut these back pretty hard and start that growth over again so they don't get out of hand. They can um, get so very have, leggy, They right? get very yeah. leggy, and we yeah. are extremely windy, so we need to be careful that, mm-hmm. you know, that's taken care of. So we have this program where we'll do half in one period, one year, and then we'll do the other half. So you're never doing something so drastic that you can actually notice that we're made a big change in mm-hmm. those beds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll always balance it out half and half. Mm-hmm. And then the aster, right? Ast- um, yes. Radon's favorite. Radon's favorite. Another um, great, great, I think, fall focus. Fragrant. Um, the leaves are very fragrant. Uh-huh. It's got a really intense aroma. It's one of my favorites, probably because it's a great pollinator. It's it's covered in bees more than most other plants. Um, I was out in the line today, this morning, and it's still blooming. So if you have the right weather, which I think we're just about to not have the right weather, but <laughs> you'll have <laughs> yeah. you'll have blooms in you know easily into December. Uh-huh. Um, also, I think in terms of the type of levels of light that you have, we'll cut back. We'll have, we do have some, some of them planted in woodlands, mm-hmm. and they'll have a later bloom time right. than they will if they're up front. So mm-hmm. it's a great plant. I, I love that plant, and it's so perky. Like, it's just so... It is perky, but we need to cut it back once or twice. We it's pretty aggressive, back. right? Yeah. It kind of rambles. Isn't it kind of rambling? It does ramble. I, I don't consider it aggressive, and I think okay. it's more about um, just keeping it in check. Um, I slowly pull it back. Mm-hmm. But if you, don't, if you don't cut it back like 12 inches, probably high, one or two times a year, it'll actually flop. So when you see ours that are so bushy, it's because we're actually taking the time to slowly cut them back starting in June. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about Ilex verticillata. Because it's the uh, season. It's the season. The season. <laughs> yes, you true. don't have to have plastic berries <laughs> on your wreath if you have Ilex verticillata. <laughs> That's right. Red sprites. Yeah, this, uh, this is one I grabbed um, <clears throat> just because it's a great punch of color mm-hmm. in a winter landscape. And if you see this in the wild, that's, not, that's a cultivar. Yeah. It's a much lower and a larger berry. Um, I think it's yeah, red sprite, as you said. Um, in the wild, you see these in a in, in woodland sort of peppered across the bottom, you know, the 
bottom layer of, the, of, the, of a woods, yeah. and you see the sparkling red. We have that in a, a more pulled back scale, but I like to see that with the uh, gray birches, mm-hmm. where you have these punches of red, kind of, you can't even see the uh, branches or stems, you see this sort of this punch of color, little specks of red throughout the woodland. And it's a, it's a great thing for winter interest. It, it, the, the berries for persist mm-hmm. until they're eaten usually by the uh, mockingbirds. The, bird, the, the birds, birds yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And then Iris domestica. And you sent me a picture of the seed heads mixed right. with calamagrostis. That's a good example. That's, that's actually in uh, another gardener's area, Aranek. And it's an example of how, you know, Pete's very willing to work with us. And, and he visits us about once a year. And we oh. do have talks with him. So we're, he's very hands-on. It's, it's great. But uh, she had made a suggestion. There's a calamagrostis up there. Um, I always call it Brachytrica, but they just changed the name to... Um, I can't remember. But um, it was a very large standing of this very erect, beautiful grass. Mm -hmm. In the photograph, you'll see that. Um, And she was trying to figure out a way to break that up. And she did the Iris Domestica, which is the blackberry lily. And it's really a stunning moment. And you need to go there and look at it. Uh Um, And it'll be stunning probably through winter. But you've got this really almost like these black pearls floating in this really beautiful, you know, almost like a forest of these these grass seed heads, which are, are very erect. And they'll stay upright through most of the winter. But it, it, Pete looked at me, he agreed, and thought it was a good idea, and it's an example of how, you know, Pete in the end is the one who calls the shots in terms of, of what we're doing, but he does listen to gardeners in terms of what they what they find or suggest. So mm-hmm. if you if you're if he does a plant, he's he's an excellent plantsman, but if something isn't quite working, the plant palette evolves too, right? Yes, a he, little. Yeah, I, I believe it's all about evolution. Okay. As we have so much change along, along the High Line, um, specifically in construction. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, full sun gardens that suddenly will become shade. Yeah, right. Because a yeah. building goes up. Right. right. Yeah. So we're always looking at how to stay ahead of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Department of Planning. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's, in, it's actually insane. I, I don't know how, how much of our beds are covered in scaffolding right now. Um, but we're constantly adjusting things for that. You know, mm-hmm. the, we also have a lot of growth. A lot of our trees are getting bigger, and mm-hmm. so we have a lot more shade in our woodland areas. So we're trying to find replacements. Um, for the herbaceous layer, the, the layer because it's just it's going to a much shadier condition, um, and we work with Pete and find the right choices. And I think the changes that happen, it's it's always very important for me as a gardener in my area that they're done in a way that's very. Um, it's never like bam in your face. It's very slow. It's very. It's something that always seems natural. And then mm-hmm. we, we do plant in a very naturalistic uh, style. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's things that are planted as if that's how they would grow in nature. Right, right. Well, let's talk about those big betulas, those big birch trees. Yeah. Um, How much soil are they planted? Yes. (laughs) How are they planted in, in, on a train bed? Because we know that they need at least 28 by 28. The betula populifolia are fairly shallow rooted. Uh Um, We have a soil depth that averages 18 inches. Okay. So it's not that deep. Um, but it's not that um, simple. At some points, our plant beds, because of the topography of the underbelly of the tray. line, could get, could go to 24 or 30. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if you ever see a metal planter on the line, mm-hmm. the core 10, um, you could add that to the 18. That's, right. a, that's a plant bed that's being raised. Because they raise up. Yeah. yeah. So it is enough. They're actually doing almost too well. They're doing, they're doing great. We <laughs> yes. have a tree management program where we're, uh-huh. we're, we're trying to like open up the canopies. Um, yeah, because these will get 60 feet tall if they're let go. Those, those won't. Those 40, won't. 40? They're like 30, 35. Okay. Um, 
Actually, Niagara gets much bigger. Right. And there is one of those um, in the field, and we'll have to, you know, watch that. But top the, it. But right. the trees are, are, are very, very happy. Do you do root pruning? We have not. I mean, we've done things where we're moving entire trunks of trees just to thin things out. Um, we've got a lot of, like, multi-stem, like seven stems, and we might take out one or two. No. We'll keep an odd n- number usually um, just to get some light in there. And mm-hmm. it's made a huge difference. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't tell that anything's being taken out because um, it's done in a way that's very natural. Um, but our, under, our undergrowth, our, the herbaceous layer is actually coming back, and I've been able to plant additional things and keep that going. Um, we've changed the plant palette, at least in Gansevoort Woodland, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's it's looking good. So it's sort of a season at a time and a lot of observation. So you gardeners go, like you each kind of have a zone or like a we do destination? So I, yeah. I'm speaking of my zone just because I'm more familiar with it, but um, yeah, each gardener has a zone. I have from Gansevoort to 14th Street, if you're familiar with the park. Mm-hmm. So it's Tiffany... Overlook, Gansevoort, and Washington grasslands. It's uh-huh. around 21,000 square feet, so it's a lot of garden bed. Uh-huh. Um, we have 124,000 roughly square feet of garden bed, mm-hmm. and it's divided up into, I believe it's eight zones, and it's one gardener per zone, um, and two gardens, I think, have two part-time employees as well. Okay. That's a lot of space. It's a lot yeah. of space. <laughs> for, yeah. It's a, actually a lot of space. Um <laughs> For not that many gardeners, right, um, right. If you're if you're a gardener, you'll understand that because there's a yeah. uh, there's a lot of work that's done. We have volunteers as well mm-hmm. uh, that help us out on a mm-hmm. almost full time basis. Mm-hmm. I think we it's time t- for us to yeah, take a we break. Yeah, we should take a break, right? So stay on the line. You're listening to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. Hi, we're back here listening to Weeded Plants on the Heritage Radio Network, and we're talking plants today and transformation with John Gunderson, senior gardener at the High Line. So let's talk about the methods of maintenance, because um, I think people who, who aren't gardeners, who are not familiar with what it takes to maintain a garden, may think that 
that style of garden doesn't require that much maintenance. It's a prairie. <laughs> right. What do you need to do? So it's, let's disabuse people of this notion yeah. right now, John. Yes. Um, it's actually a highly cultivated garden. Yeah. Um, I always look at it as the other gardeners do. It, it's it's almost like you're trying to keep this image that's always changing but in check because mm-hmm. um, everything is running and everything is not everything, but many things are fighting to, to take over valuable space. Um, Just and like every New like, Yorker. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's almost like the strongest plant will survive. And as gardeners, we're constantly keeping that that image alive. And it's always changing, but we're, we, we know what that picture is. Um, mm-hmm. And we're grooming. We're, we're taking things back. We're constantly battling with weeds. We're constantly keeping the species that were specified in the area from staying there and not allowing any other species in unless it's approved. Um, You're sounding right. like Donald Trump right now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to build a wall between the plants? No, we won't. Um, um, so, and birds, and, you know, birds drop seeds, I'm sure, yes. and the wind yeah. brings seeds, because that's, you know. Yeah. So do you use organic practices re- it's, usually? It's completely organic. Okay. There's, there's no chemicals on the lawn. That's awesome. So we're proud of that. Um, we have a only organic program. Where is your storage area? Storage is... Because that's the hardest part of of New York, like storage space. It's storage and distance. So we Mm -hmm. do have um, two storage areas. One is in in our headquarters building, which is a Gansawort below Mm -hmm. the Whitney, uh, which is a a decent amount of storage, not a lot. And the other one is at a place called the Spur, which is roughly 16th Street. But it's always a struggle. I think the bigger struggle is, oh, we also have some storage at 34th Street. Okay. I think the biggest bigger issue is the distance. It's 1.45 miles um, as far as getting stuff back and yeah, forth. Yeah, right. It's almost like an for me an hour walk back mm-hmm. and forth. You know, and that's so that's a to, commute. Like yeah. you get to work and then you have to commute right. to work. I, to I, I am lucky. I'm actually um, at the very beginning yeah. of our office. But you know, kudos to the gardeners that actually have to take the, do this. You know, you know, two three times a year. Yeah, I mean a day. Sorry. Right. And you. Um, you don't. There's no elevator access. You have to just use the stairs to get materials up, or do you have? Elevators? No, we have elevators. You have elevators. Okay, so you can. Yeah, we're pretty. It's 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 pretty well, you know. But you can't get any designed. heavy equipment up there. No, we it's can't. All we hand. can. It's all hand. No, we, we we do. We have a freight elevator that goes from. Street oh, you can. Up. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. so you do have some a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. We're, I think we're pretty. I think decently set up. So, I've seen you uh, during a couple times, like weekdays. I've seen you gardening. It's very crowded all the time in it, the park. Yes. In, uh, up on the, on the yeah, yes. If, like I decided when I was in school that I wanted to go into public gardening, and I think there's probably not a more public space <laughs> in this space. Right. Um, and and it's could, small. It's small. The paths are small for the most part. You're, you're talking about like an eight or nine foot path. Uh-huh. Um, and, you, and you do have to love people, and we do communicate with our uh, visitors on a daily basis. It's encouraged. Um, but you, you just need to be ready. You know, in the mornings, we, is a lot of times where we get most of our work done, mm-hmm. um, and we still work in the afternoons. Um, but we have, I think the numbers for this year, they're projecting over 7 million, 7.5 yes. million. So that's, if you just do the math, that's like 144,000, uh, you know, a, a week, which pr- is probably actually more loaded heavily in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of people, um, Right, and there you are trying to get work done, yeah. and people are talking to you, and you're... It's an added challenge, but yeah. it's, it, it's still it's part of the job, and mm-hmm. I think 
you know, we're all there for a reason. The garden mm-hmm. is a, a pretty incredible. There are other jobs out there if, if, if it's something that you're not happy right. with. I personally, I do like engaging with the public, and they encourage it because, uh-huh. you know, people have a lot of questions about plants, and I don't mind taking the time to yeah. do that. So irrigation. Irrigation. How do you water <laughs> these plants on an elevated trestle? <laughs> we are, well, I'd say first off, um, we are fully irrigated. Mm-hmm. Um, but we rely probably most heavily on hand watering because it's probably the best way to go. Or yeah. at least, let's say, as, a, as a, a decent component to our watering. Um, some areas on the line are not irrigated at all, so those definitely have to be hand watering. But when you hand water, it's the time that you actually observe right. what needs to be done or what's running or what's you know, possibly on its way out or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but with that, we have a full drip system. And uh, spray heads mostly in wooded areas, uh-huh. and this is fully programmable um, through a computer, so we can basically monitor and, and moderate it in any number of. Do you manage ways. that as well, John? Is that part of your responsibility too? To it's part adjust? of uh, three. It's our responsibility. It's right. myself, um, Ernick, and um, and I'm dropping his name. So you have Wait, to adjust it regularly. Like, and, and so you just say, like, hey, we're having a problem over here with these betulas, and let's get them... I have... There's... If people have any issues... Because it's all about obser- observation. Mm-hmm. And irrigation, you can't rely on, because you, you never know when it's going to possibly really stop working. working right. or, um, yeah. So you're constantly looking at this stuff. And mm-hmm. people will report back to, to me, Ornick, and, and um, Aaron... That uh, if anything's going wrong, we'll adjust it slowly. Um, And and I think we err on the watering on the left side Mm -hmm. um, more than on the plus side. Mm -hmm. And I think that what what falls in between that is hand watering. Mm -hmm. And which and we were set up in a way. It's like every twenty feet, we actually have a a quick connect coupler. So that's amazing. That's great. We we use irrigation on almost all of our projects, and it's a it's a double edged sword, as Uh Alice and I know, because most of our clients, uh, you know, (laughs) there isn't somebody at their house looking at it and paying attention to the gardens on a daily basis. They rely too much on the irrigation. You know what I mean? Like they just, and it, it causes a lot of problems. Yeah. I think, the, I, I think the key you know? to all of this is, is you're trying to keep your plants as unstressed as possible right. and as happy as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's really just delivering the, the correct amount of water. It's not, about overwatering the, yeah. the irrigation system is not a, a, a solve all. Yeah. So we 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 really try to look at it and pull it back as much as possible. And there's nothing more disappointing than finding out that one of your heads that you didn't realize had a break in it. You know, was flooding a bed for you know a week or so. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So we monitor that carefully, and you know, originally they they had hoped that the, most of the plants are drought tolerant that we would need nothing. Right. Um, but that seems to not be the case because we are a strange microclimate. We've got winds much you're, stronger than at street level. Yeah, you're all drying the time. out. So we're drying so out very fast. fast. So yeah, yeah. It's, it, and it's always changing season by season, the way we use the irrigation yeah. system and, and how much we're watering, et cetera. Yeah. And then this fall was extremely dry. I mean, correct. And so, yep. you know, there's been yeah. strange, strange seasonal stuff excessively warm, excessively dry. So you have to have that backup, but I think people rely on it too much. That's what I was trying to say. It's just they really a lot of people do think of it as just oh I turn it on and 
and know? it works and it's and it fine. Works. Right. Or Which we, is, yeah. And it's like, and or clients will say, oh, it's October. It's time to shut it off. As, as if there's like a magic time when plants don't, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, our, just, our magic time is we, it needs to be shut off before we get our, a, a hard freeze. Yes. So. Right. Yes, exactly. But of course it can be backed down yeah, yeah, yeah. to that point. Yeah. You know. But I think hand watering is the way to go for the most part. Our area is so big, I don't know if we could. <laughs> Just hand water. But. Well, like you said, eyes on the plants. I mean, there's no better indicator yeah. than... And there's nothing more pleasant than watering a garden and actually having time to rest and oh, just look at so stuff. Oh, it's so awesome. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's actually, when I come home from work, that's actually... I don't do much in my front container garden because I'm tired, you know, um, and it's my husband's job, frankly. I tell him what to do. <laughs> but watering the plants is... Like, just to have that hour of, like, really looking and seeing what's going on and right. what bugs are present. and It's not as fun as weeding. It, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a pruner. pruner. I'm, a, a pruner. I'm a pruner. I'm happy with the loppers and the pruners. That's my favorite garden task, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I confess. So let's also talk about, so there's tons of visitors, right? Um, but there's also a lot of programming that happens Alongside these gorgeous plants. Um, So the High Line is first and foremost a public park for the neighbors and for New Yorkers. Um, It offers a lot of free programming to reflect that public nature. And they do things like uh, youth employment programs. They're hoping to educate more people in the community about horticulture and the work that you, John, do. Um, And hopefully get the community excited about engaging and working with plants and public spaces. So um, I know you guys offer a lot of um, uh, stargazing. You have a lot of music events. You have a lot of art installations throughout the year. There's a couple of things that are coming up. One is the summer sol- or the winter solstice, December 21st. That starts at 5 p.m. Um, it's called The Gates, right? And mm-hmm. um, that tell us a little bit about The Gates, John. What I'm actually n- not the one that can answer that. Okay. I'm actually mostly the horticulture stuff. I it's a soundscape kind it's of soundscape. program. Yeah. I think it, yeah. There might be a description there that, in terms of what Cub had sent you. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a score of elect- of electric guitar chords, Zen gongs, and more. Well, that sounds it, fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so, really fun. The and more part, yeah. It seems like it's interactive. So I, I believe that it, that is true. It's an interactive piece that you yeah. connect to. And, there was and it changes as you walk to the park. And, you, and the, art, the public art changes periodically. There's always some interesting yes, the, art. The, the public art, it, it's more like a... Within the backdrop of the gardens themselves, it's right. almost like a, a, not almost is, a gallery. Um, yeah. We have sculptures that change every year. Uh-huh. So sometimes you come back to see your favorites gone, um, but every year there'll be new a new series of sculptures uh, throughout the line. Right, right, that's, and right. Yeah, this, year was, cool. this year was amazing. You had the sculpture, right? Uh, that was in kind of in your area, the naked man or the underwear oh, man? No, that, the underwear man is, <laughs> which has a name, the sleepwalker. The sleepwalker. The sleepwalker. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah, that's actually at uh, 14th Street. Yeah. Yes. Which there were, I mean, I, I'm walking along and all of a sudden it bottlenecks and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe there's like a food vendor there or something. And then I look and I'm like, oh, is that guy real? Like there, were, everybody was photographing themselves with it, right. taking <laughs> selfies, and it was, it, 
it took me probably half an hour to realize it's a sculpture. Yeah. Wow. I guess I see him so much that yeah, <laughs> you stop, you stop looking. But it is so unbelievable of this man walking, sleepwalking. Yes. Now, there's interesting uh, works of art. Is it line. done in conjunction with the Whitney, or do you have your no? Own? It's it's all separate. It's all okay. separate. So okay, because the Whitney is together. you know the Whitney's right there, right yep. there, yep. right. Yeah, but there, are, you know, in almost every zone, there'll be a different sculpture through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All the way to thirty right. fourth. Right. And then you also have uh, some winter tours um, on the High Line. So yeah, we have tours that happen all the time, so uh-huh. including winter. Um, they probably are in less frequent in the winter. Uh-huh. But there are gardener-led tours and then docent-led tours. Um, there's bird-watching tours. Um, right. But these, you know, the, the programming is much heavier in the in the warmer months. Right. Um, and you can find all that out on the website. On the do website. You, do you lead some of the tours, John? Do you? I do lead yeah. tours. I lead yeah. tours for just uh, visitors who have signed up and also for private tours for different organizations or companies. Oh, that's interesting. And and vol- you said you have a big core of volunteers too, right? That yeah, we do. Have a, we have a ton of pretty wonderful volunteers. Uh, Starting out with what we call cutback, which is our spring, yes. spring event, uh-huh. um, one of our maintenance techniques, because yeah. we can't we can't burn um, a prairie, but we can cut it back um, mm-hmm. in early spring. And because of the amount of square footage, we're yeah. talking about something that we, as the gardening staff you can't. itself, would yeah. have a very hard time doing before new growth would be happening. So we have around 150 plus volunteers That's cool. that come in over between four and six weeks, and we start out um, at one end, south or north or middle, <laughs> and slowly spread out until we've cut everything back, um, and then we compost everything fully. Oh, uh-huh. that's cool. So, and then everything's returned back to the line. Where do you compost, John? We have a facility in what I'm calling the spur, where I talked about our storage. So we okay. actually do um, process all of our cutback material. So that's great. Nothing is brought to, to uh, fresh kills. Um, it's all turned <laughs> mm-hmm. into uh, our own compost wow and you i'm sure you have product. a lot of a lot of material that you we have in. a ton of material we yeah. have um I, I had these numbers and i have them in front of me but um but during cutback i think we're producing like 33 like yard like wow. three, three by three wow yard bags per week uh-huh and that's part of your response the gardener's responsibility too is to to manage the compost or no no we are we do that yeah. as well and we also have like some of our uh, we're talking about you know uh, volunteers or programming mm-hmm. um, I think the teens might be part of that um, we mm-hmm. don't know because we just interviewed them so we'll see but yeah we do manage that with uh, other volunteers um, it's an ongoing thing it never stops right, right. yeah yeah compost unfortunately doesn't doesn't just stop. Doesn't go away. <laughs> and is that how it's prim- is that how it's comp- fed? There's no additional feeding, or is there? No, they do. I'm not bit. the compost person. Right. Um, that's uh, Casper and Mark, and some others. Um, but they do feed stuff. They, okay. they they'll bring in. We we have local shops that give us coffee grounds, mm-hmm. um, depending on if you need a little bit more wet to balance or out dry the compost. To balance it out, and they do monitor it, and we have. But I mean, in addition to compost, is the garden fed? Additionally, we, oh, you mean the garden beds themselves? Yeah, yeah. We do compost tea um, okay. applications, mm-hmm. and okay. we do compost. We'll actually put down and that's layers it. of mulch, and nothing synthetic. And that's it. Or, um, right. No, there's no synthetic, so it's okay. it's all natural. And we have the soil tested, and we're actually doing pretty good. We were surprised, but we're we're fairly okay nutrient wise across. It's the pretty uh-huh. amazing. Yeah. So eighteen inches. 18 inches going up to some of the trees. Some of the tree pits are deeper, and if you go to the flyover, for example, you've got mounds that might, 
you know, you might be talking like 48 inches. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. Depth. Right. So, but 18 inches is on average what our soil is. So, free winter tours every Saturday through the winter at noon. Um, check out the Highline website, thehighline.org, to learn more about the programming, the theory, the history, the gardens, like the art. It's it's such a great organization. And the people. And the, and people. the people. Yeah. It's such a great organization, and New York is so lucky that we have it. Yeah. And it's um, another example of community people. There were two people that lived in the community that rescued it initially, that it was their idea. It was started out, and they had yeah. no idea what they wanted to do with it. No, so. right. but they wanted, it, they know that they didn't want, the city was in the, was wanting to potentially it tear it down. Right. And imagine, they had vision. Yeah. You know? No, correct. They were, yeah. they were great. Yeah. They just needed the money. They did. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and, they, and they raised the money. Yes, they, they, they did. They, they did. did. And that's what has, you know, transformation, right? They yes. have transformed that entire side of Manhattan. Right. I um, think, and I, you probably agree with me, John, that the High Line made the neighborhood and not the other way around. Right? Um, in, in, a, in the sense of development, right? That, that was, well, Battery Park City and the whole greening of the Hudson River, you know? Right. That, I think that... Um, or that's, maybe that's accelerate. Easy, that's the easy way. I, th- I think, I think um, it might be part of that. Yeah. That's acceleration. But the yeah. area itself was a, a big art gallery area. Right, right. So that was what was Soho had moved in into those big warehouses. Right. And that it maybe were... was the appropriate time for this to happen. Exactly. Um, right. But it did have a, a part. It, it, you it know? has an impact. I mean, it's a great destination. So Yeah. So just as an old rusty railway can bloom into a great pedestrian botanical destination, just as us gardeners plant and hope for a better future, and just as the seed head is elevated... And appreciated for what it holds in its interior, we hope 2017 is better and more peaceful and full of beautiful change for humanity. John, thanks for joining us. No, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for all your work at the High Line. Yeah, come come visit early. Yeah, <laughs> early in the morning is best. That's an insider's no, view. No, it's, it's beautiful. There's no one there. So there's there's nobody yes. there, right. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you all for listening to us on, on uh, We Dig Plants. You can join us on Facebook at Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants. On Twitter at We Dig Plants. We also have an Instagram account, Groundworks Gardens NYC. And, of course, our website, WeDigPlantsPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. See you in the garden. See and you in 2017. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.